Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Institute for Healthcare Improvement's Author in the Room conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session. Please note that today's conference is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. David Shute. Dr. Shute is the Medical Director and Senior Consultant with Greenfield Health System in Portland. Greenfield is an innovative medical practice whose mission is delivery of superior clinical quality and patient service and spread of best practices through advocacy and teaching. Previously, Dr. Shute served as the Medical Director of Acumentra Health, the Oregon Quality Improvement Organization. There, Dr. Shute was responsible for oversight of all clinical activities and led the state's quality improvement activities. Dr. Shute, you may go ahead. Great. Thank you very much. Greetings and welcome again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Dr. Shute, and I will serve as your moderator today. We are delighted that you could join us. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, with the next call being on October 17th, again, at 2 p.m. The article for that call will be Effectiveness of Teaching Quality Improvement to Clinicians. Please join us. Several organizations have made author in the room a regular part of their learning experience, and we encourage you to do as well. Today, our featured author is Dr. Doug Lowy, uh, author of the published article, Effective Human Papillomavirus 1618, Particle Immunization Among Young Women with Pre-Existing Infection. Dr. Lowy has been chief of the National Cancer Institute's Laboratory of Cellular Oncology since 1983. Dr. Lowy's research has included basic and translational research on papillomaviruses, which are the major cause of cervical cancer, the second most common cause of cancer in women, as well as fundamental studies on the RAS oncogenes, which are dysregulated in many cancers. Dr. Lowy received his MD from New York University and trained in internal medicine at Stanford University and in dermatology at Yale University. Welcome, Dr. Lowy. As, moder as moderator, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Lowy's research with the goal of driving performance improvement based on his article. The purpose of Author in the Room is for you to hear directly from an author about the research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. Together, Dr. Lowy and I will help you translate what's in the paper into changes applicable to your practice. Here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Lowy will spend about 10 minutes summarizing his findings. I will then take about five minutes to talk about some of the uh, implications and the real-world real world practice setting. I want to stress how important your participation is in these calls. This is a great forum in which to get clarification on the article itself by hearing directly from the author and to contemplate with others the significance of the findings and the steps you might take in using this information towards the improvement of care. Your participation, not just in terms of questions, but also offering up your experience in this area will be very helpful to the call. There are approximately 30 phone lines connected to the call today. Generally, most phone lines have multiple participants per line. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. On another note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on both the IHI and the JAMA websites as a streaming audio or podcasts. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are also available on these sites. And now, let's get started. Let me again, again introduce Dr. Lowy, who will provide an overview of his recent article. Dr. Lowy? Thank you very much, Dr. Shute, and I uh, really appreciate uh, everyone being on the call and would like to try to make this informative. Before I discuss the article and some of its implications, I would like everyone to be aware that I am an inventor 
of the vaccine and the National Institutes of Health has licensed the technology both to GlaxoSmithKline, uh, about which this article is uh, dealing, and also uh, to Merck, the other company that is uh, developing the HPV vaccine. Uh, I will, however, do my best to try to be fair and balanced in my presentation. The article in question uh, is dealing with a somewhat different question from the issues that have been dealt with up to now with the HPV vaccine. The two companies' vaccines have both been shown to be highly effective in preventing uh, incident infection or new infection in uh, young women who have been immunized with the, with the vaccine. In this particular article, however, instead of looking at the development of new infection, what was done was to take the women who were positive for HPV 16 or HPV 18 at the time that they started the vaccination and to ask over the period of the next year was the rate of clearance of the uh, HPV 16 or 18 infection affected or influenced by the vaccination. And what we found was that there was no difference between the control group which received hepatitis A vaccine and the vaccinated group which received the GSK vaccine, HPV 16 and 18, in the rate of clearance. Over the first year, a little more than one-half of the women in, who were infected at the time they started to receive the vaccine, a little more than one-half of them uh, cleared their infection, but the rate of clearance was very similar between the control group as well as the vaccinated group. Uh, I should point out that uh, data from the Merck vaccine seem to be quite analogous. So I think that we can conclude that although the vaccine is good at preventing incident infection, it does not seem to have effectiveness in uh, in trying to help clear established infection. And so the vaccine is presumably going to be most effective in women who have not yet been infected. That really is the main take-home message of the paper uh, itself. But I think that it highlights the importance of giving the vaccine for those people who are going to receive the vaccine to receive it prior to exposure to the HPV types uh, in the vaccine. Now, as I mentioned, there are two different vaccines that are uh, under development. This vaccine is the GlaxoSmithKline vaccine, which is a bivalent vaccine, and it, uh, it targets HPV 16 and 18, which together account for about 70% of cervical cancer, both in the United States as well as worldwide. And uh, this vaccine in a preventive mode has been shown to be highly effective in preventing incident infection uh, attributable to those HPV types. The, uh, I, the Merck vaccine is a quadrivalent vaccine. It also has HPV 16 and 18, but in addition, it uh, targets HPV 6 and 11, which together account for about 90% of genital warts, and it has been shown to prevent infection uh, by any of those four HPV types, uh, either uh, external genital infection, such as genital warts, or internal infection uh, of the cervix, uh, the vaginal tract, and the, and the vulva. In terms of regulatory status, the Merck vaccine was approved by the FDA last year and is now relatively widely available. 
uh, GlaxoSmithKline applied to the FDA for a license earlier this year, and it uh, is possible that they might be receiving li- they might be receiving licensure uh, in the next few in the next few months. From a public health point of view. The vaccine has the potential to prevent the vast majority of serious HPV infections that could lead to cervical cancer. But because the effectiveness of the vaccine is predominantly effective against the HPV types that are in the vaccine, there are potentially going to be 25 or 30 percent of potentially serious infections that are not going to be prevented by either vaccine because the protection is relatively type-specific or type-restricted, and quite a number of different HPV types account for the other 30% of cervical cancer. Because of that, it will continue to be important, even for women who are vaccinated, to uh, continue to follow cervical cancer screening guidelines so that potentially serious infections that are not prevented by the vaccine uh, will be able to be found and treated before cervical cancer uh, develops. The vaccine, uh, the Merck vaccine has been approved for uh, girls and women between the ages of 9 and 26 with routine vaccination targeting the 11 to 12-year-old group and catch-up vaccination uh, for the 13 to 26-year-old group. The rationale for targeting young adolescents is because, as I mentioned, the vaccine is very effective at preventing new infections attributable to the HPV types in the vaccines, but as shown in this uh, in this paper, it is not effective in enhancing the rate of clearance uh, of HPV infection in people who are already infected. Thank you very much. And thank you, Dr. Lowy, for that wonderful uh, summarization of your article. And, and now we want to turn a, to think a little bit about what the research suggestion suggests in terms of changes in our clinical practice. Uh, changes that the clinicians and healthcare professionals might want to consider to incorporate these conclusions. Uh, and interestingly, Dr. Lowy, as, as a negative study, perhaps it says to us that we shouldn't be changing anything in our clinical practice. Uh, but what I think it does suggest, as you said very clearly, that we need to be very vigilant about uh, getting high prevalence rates of this vaccine uh, in young women. And I think the challenge, of course, for us in the young adolescent age group is how do we reach those women? Uh, how do we educate them and their parents to the importance of the vaccine? Uh, and specifically, what kind of systems uh, should pediatricians or gynecologists have in place both to track the vaccine status of their patients uh, and to do recalls as needed to make sure that the vaccine series is completed? I think that presents us quite a challenge, particularly in an age range uh, where there's often not frequent contact with healthcare professionals. I think another challenge uh, that's probably even greater is what you described, Dr. Lowy, as the catch-up vaccination challenge. Uh, and how do we um, catch up with those women who have already passed that uh, targeted age for initial vaccination but yet aren't 26 yet and still would have benefit? Uh, and so I think obviously this gets back to uh, underscoring the value of a registry, a registry that can track the population of patients uh, that we are responsible for caring for, and of course to track the targeted service, in this case the HPV vaccination. Well, now with that, I want to go ahead and turn questions from our callers, uh, both for Dr. Lowy about the implications of the research. Uh, I'd also like to hear your thoughts about how we can achieve high prevalence rates for vaccinating girls and young women with this vaccine. Uh, so we'll open up the call lines in just a moment. Uh, your questions can include both how to make the clinical improvements and, again, we would uh, encourage you to share examples of what you may have already done with this information or what you're planning to do with it. So. Uh, do we have any calls waiting in the queue at this time? Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. 
If you have a question, please press star, then one on your phone. If you wish to be removed from the queue, please press the pound sign or the hash key. If you are using a speakerphone, you may need to pick up the handset first before pressing the numbers. Once again, if there are any questions, please press star, then one on your phone. And while we're waiting for questions, Dr. Lowy, I think I'd like to get it started with one question. If we have women, say, in the 20 to 25 age group um, who haven't been vaccinated, uh, is, is it appropriate to just go ahead and vaccinate them? Or, as your research suggests, would it be appropriate to try to test them first for the presence of HPV uh, before vaccinating them? Yes, this is an excellent question. Uh, the only approved test uh, for HPV diagnosis really looks at the presence of infection uh, by a variety of HPV types, and it does not actually distinguish between HPV A, B, C, and D. And all that it might tell you is that you are already infected with one HPV type. Uh, the data suggest that if you are infected with one type but not with uh, the other or the others that are in the vaccine, that you still could get benefit from the, vac from the vaccine against the HPV types to which you have not been exposed. It is always possible that you might be HPV DNA negative uh, and yet have been exposed previously because luckily the vast majority of infections are clear spontaneously and have a benign outcome. But the recommendation uh, from the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices of the Centers for Disease Control was for vaccination, was for catch-up vaccination for women up to the uh, age of 26. And so it's not necessary for them to be pre-screened. Wonderful. Thank you. And that actually makes it quite simpler from the clinical practice point of view. So uh, do we have any questions in the queue at this time? Our first question comes from Helen Horn of USAF. Please go ahead. Um, our, that was the question that we had, so it was answered, to, um, answered quite eloquently. We appreciate it. Do you have any other questions? No, Not this time. Great. Thank you very much for calling in. Thank you. So, I would like to uh, add that it's particularly in women of this age group that I think that education uh, about the need for them to continue to have cervical cancer screening is particularly important. First, they may already have prevalent infection, and second, uh, many women in that age group are already sexually active, and uh, they should not be uh, under false pretenses to think that they are protected from all potentially serious infections. Good point. Thank you very much for that clarification. Uh, any more questions at this time? We do have another question from Kathy Dratman of Independence. Please go ahead. Thank you. Um, it's a follow-up to the prior question. Uh, a young woman with a history of an abnormal pap, would you still, and that is uh, um, going towards cancer, um, would you still advocate vaccinating her? Uh, I think that that is something that would be decided on a case-by-case -case basis. The m much more important issue is to follow the abnormal pap smear. The abnormal pap smear usually is attributable to infection by a single HPV type, although there may be multiple infections. Uh, the benefit that such a woman might get from the vaccine probably will be substantially less than uh, if she uh, did not have an abnormal pap smear and had not been previously exposed to HPV. But in addition, it's possible that her abnormal pap smear might not be attributable either to HPV-16 or to HPV-18. 
And under those circumstances, she might benefit from it. So that's, I think, the reason that the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices essentially recommended catch-up vaccine for all women in that age group. There's no suggestion that someone who has an active infection is going to have a greater uh, range of side effects or things like or things like that. And so in that sense, there is not a contraindication. Uh, for vaccination. Thank you. Thank you. We do have another question from June Curry of the Methodist Healthcare. Please go ahead. Uh, yes, I was wondering if a woman could have been previously exposed but cleared and could still benefit from vaccination, then why are we stopping the age range at 26? Okay. Uh, Dr. Curry, I think the question that you really are asking is why is it only approved up to age 26? Correct. And the reason is that that's uh, what the FDA decided because that is the oldest age at which efficacy was demonstrated. Uh, both Merck and GlaxoSmithKline are carrying out studies to determine whether there is efficacy in women who are uh, at least up to the age of 45. And when they have data that indicates that there is protection, then I think first the FDA will look at those data critically. And if they approve it, then I think that there will be uh, another look by the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices for making recommendations for women in that uh, age group. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. We do have one more question from Mary Emmett of Charleston area. Please go ahead. Oh, hi. Um, I'm, we wanted to know, um, is there, has there been a consideration for the vaccines for boys and men since they are a role in the transmission process? Yes. Uh, this is actually a very interesting issue, as I will try to go into, but not in too much detail. Uh, Again, uh, the pharmaceutical companies are uh, carrying out efficacy studies in males, and there may be efficacy available uh, in the next two to three years. They focused on women because actually about 90% of the cancers uh, attributable to HPV infection occur in women, and that's why women were focused on first. Uh, the FDA did not wish to consider approving the vaccine for boys because although there is uh, the same kind of immunological response seen in boys between the ages of 9 and 15 as girls between the ages of 9 and 15, the uh, FDA wanted to wait until there was actual demonstration of efficacy. The European Union took exactly the same data, actually, and they approved the vaccine for boys age 9 to 15 as well as girls uh, age 9 to 15. So this is that's basically the explanation of why uh, boys have not yet been approved. Dr. Lowe, Dr. Shooter, I want to ask a follow-up question of that. When you say there's no efficacy, um, are you talking about efficacy in terms of preventing HPV infection? Uh, there's just no data. Okay. No I didn't mean to imply that the vaccine has been shown to be ineffective in males. There simply are no uh, efficacy data. Okay, and the companies need to the, the companies need to demonstrate protection. Uh, I think before the at least in some in males of some age group before the FDA will seriously consider uh, approval. I suspect that a reason for that is that there is a subunit vaccine. Uh, against herpes simplex that is currently in phase three trials in women. And the phase two trials showed partial efficacy in 
women, but not in men. And I think that the FDA is trying to make sure that this does not happen with the HPV vaccine because they don't want to be in the position of approving a vaccine that then turns out not to be effective in the group for which they have uh, appro- approved the vaccine. So I would say that they are trying to err on the side of caution. I should point out that the degree of efficacy of the HPV vaccine in women is substantially higher than the degree of efficacy, uh, at least in the phase two trial, uh, of the uh, herpes uh, simplex vaccine. Wonderful. Well, that certainly is an attractive public health approach, if indeed it does turn out to be efficacious in men and boys uh, to really intervene uh, in both genders to try and decrease the incidence of the virus considerably. Yes. So, wonderful. Do we have any other questions in the queue at this time? We do have another question from Linda Van of Cambridge Health. Please go ahead. Hi. I was wondering if you could explain um, the significance of the timeline that's generally expected for clearance of women who actually do test positive for HPV and what the recommended procedure is to follow up with them and also what the, um, if any conclusions can be made towards the usefulness to prevent reinfection in those who have actually been tested positive and then cleared. So those are a lot of uh, important questions. I think that the usual recommendation uh, is to follow women who are positive uh, either every six or 12 months. And infections usually clear over a a six to 18 month period. And women who are persistently positive for 18 months or longer uh, are considered to have persistent or are considered to have persistent infection. For a woman who clears, to the best of our knowledge, she is probably not at high risk of developing another a serious infection by the same HPV type. Uh, She may develop another infection, but if she has cleared infection number one, the thinking is that she will probably spontaneously clear infection number two unless she were to become immunologically suppressed uh, or something like that. The problem is that there are many different HPV types, and unfortunately, to the extent that it has been studied, it looks as though protection is largely type-specific, so that if you are infected with HPV type A and you clear, your likelihood of having a serious infection from A is very small, but your don't you don't seem to be uh, have a real difference in your likelihood of getting a serious infection from B than if you had never been exposed to A before. Thank you. Thank you. We do have another question from Robin Adams of Geisinger Health Systems. Please go ahead. Uh, hello. Um, I have read some places where there's some um, preliminary data on some cross-protection um, to other HPV types. Um, could you discuss um, where where that information is at and how you think it will impact vaccination? Yes, uh, thank you for bringing uh, uh, that up. Uh, I, in my opening remarks, I was trying to be uh, general, but <clears throat> uh, the GlaxoSmithKline has presented data both in their uh, phase two trial as well as the interim analysis of their phase three trial that was recently published in the Lancet for some cross protection. Now what the HP the HPV types may be closely related to 16 and 18 or distantly related to 16 and 18. And the best protection that they saw was against HPV 45, which is very closely related to HPV 18. Uh, They also saw some uh, protection against 31, which is 
uh, relatively closely related to 16, uh, although not as uh, closely related as 18 is, as, as 45 is to 18. They then looked at three other HPV types that are not as closely related to 16 as 31, and they did not see protection against those three types. So the conclusion is that the vaccine is type restricted rather than type specific. Uh, and the implication is that there may be a, a little bit more protection than just against the HPV types that are in the vaccine, uh, that are in the vaccine itself. But there clearly will still be serious infections attributable to other HPV types that won't be targeted by the vaccine. Merck has not yet uh, done studies uh, that, that have reported this along the same lines, although I suspect that we may be hearing something about that in the near future. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Again, if there are any more questions on the phone, please press star, then one. Great. Well, thank you very much for that wonderful discussion. Uh, I'm curious, Dr. Lowe, do you have any data on uh, our success um, in terms of administering this vaccination to the target population? Well, I think that I, I don't think that there are official data uh, available yet, and uh, I, I think that there has been a lot of education, if you will, or quasi-education. Uh, certainly Merck has been advertising the uh, vaccine uh, in the media to uh, and, and the role of HPV in uh, developing cervical cancer because I think that this is an issue that has not been clearly before the public. So, uh, so there's one issue number one is awareness. Uh, I think that uh, the vaccine uh, probably has uh, been, there's been more interest perhaps among older teenagers and young women uh, than, in the very, than in the very young uh, group, but I don't have any data uh, as, far as, as far as that is concerned. Uh, one of the things that Dr. Shute brought up is that is really very important has to do with coverage uh, in this age group, and it really ha the, the experience uh, with other vaccines has not been uh, particularly encouraging. The principal reason for changing the age uh, of vaccination for hepatitis B virus vaccine to make it in uh, in, in younger children uh, instead of in young adolescents was because the coverage was poor. And uh, I read in the paper a couple of weeks ago that the meningitis vaccine, uh, which is approved for use in teenagers, uh, has a coverage uh, of about 12% at the moment, according to the Centers for Disease Control. 12%, that's absolutely abysmal. It's low. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I'd like to hear from any of our listeners who, again, are in clinical practice. What are your strategies for trying to both educate your young girls, women, and parents, and to really reach out, um, ideally to seize every opportunity when you see patients, but even better yet, to try to reach out to patients, uh, not at the point of service, but proactively. Uh, so that's a really an invitation for any comments uh, from our listeners. Do we have any questions in the queue at this time? We do. Our first comes from Diane Trimble of St. Luke's Hospital. Please go ahead. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes, Dr. Trimble. Yes. Um, I was calling, what would you do with a patient who you had maybe a slightly positive uh, HPV result with an abnormal pap smear? Would you suggest treating them with a vaccination? Well, the usual recommendation is that uh, it, it is to, uh, if, if the results are a mild, uh, a, a mild abnormality, they uh, will often go to colposcopy, and if there's no, uh, if there isn't either intermediate or severe dysplasia, to simply be followed. Because the vast majority of these infections, even ones that have cytological abnormality, is that they go away, and there is 
uh, concern about overtreatment. On the other hand, if women develop either uh, intermediate or high-grade dysplasia, that is recommended for treatment regardless of the HPV type uh, that is causing it. So would you recommend um, that group receiving the immunization? <clears throat> well, uh, th that's related to a question that was uh, raised uh, that was raised previously. The, the recommendation of the uh, advisory committee on immunization practices uh, is independent of whether or not women have abnormal uh, Pap smears, and the principal reason for that, I think, is because we don't have. Uh, approved HPV DNA testing, etc., and the thinking was that there would be the potential benefit, uh, and that you would not want to deny uh, a woman the potential benefit just because she currently has an active infection. It may not be; it, it, it might or might not be uh, attributable to either HPV 16 or 18, uh, in, and uh, therefore she might get, if you will, full benefit if she had never been exposed to either of them. But the rationale also was that even if she had been exposed to one of the two types but not the other one, that she could get benefit uh, in, in, that, in, in that way. Uh, clearly, the older you get and the more infections you have had, the less benefit you're going to get from the vaccine. Do we have any other questions in the queue at this time? We do. Our next question or comment comes from Hillary Helene from Clinica. Please go ahead. Hi, I'm calling from a community health center in Colorado and had a strategy to share. Um, Thank you for calling. Sure. We have um, our, by definition of community health center, we serve the medically underserved, so most of our patients can afford the HPV vaccine. We do have vaccine for children, which will cover HPV through age 18, but we just um, applied for a grant to cover women ages 19 to 26, receive money to uh, fully immunize 46 women across three of our sites, and so we set up a small registry, and we trained our case managers and behavioral health providers to do HPV education, um, present the option to get the vaccine, um, to all women in that age group, and then uh, we're hoping that if we can show that 46 women very quickly wanted the vaccine, that we'll go back and ask for more money to um, try and immunize everyone in that age group to get them caught up. Um, and then with our registry, we hope to follow the women throughout the years to look at outcomes later on. Boy, that's wonderful. Do you have any preliminary data on the response of your patients that you've done outreach to? Well, we actually implemented just two days ago. <laughs> <laughs> so I only have um, responses for six women, and all six women wanted the vaccine. So, um, so it's really early on, but my understanding is that women are coming and asking for the vaccine. Dr. Helene, uh, the people at Merck have told me that they uh, would provide vaccine uh, free of charge to women between the ages of 19 and 26 who fall in uh, below a certain uh, economic uh, group. And I don't know specifically what that group is. Uh, is your uh, is the source of your grant uh, from the state of Colorado? No, it's um, through a community foundation, a private organization within Colorado. I see, because I, I I don't know the details about the Merck program, but what they told me was that it was specifically designed to complement the vaccine for children's program, which, as you say, only uh, covers uh, adolescents up to the age of 18. Okay, that's good to know. Thank you. Uh, do you have any uh, information, Dr. Lowy, about uh, who she might want to contact? Mm -hmm. I, I, don't, uh, the, I, I don't have uh, the only, the, the person whom I know would be Richard Haupt, H-A-U-P-T, uh, who is at Merck and very involved with the uh, with with the va with the vaccine? 
Wonderful. That's very helpful. Thank you. And uh, congratulations to you, uh, Federally Qualified Health Center. Uh, I think, once again, we see the FQHCs oftentimes being on the forefront of practicing population-based health care. So congratulations to you. Thank you. Do we have any other callers in the queue at this time? I have another from Helen Horn of USAF. Please go ahead, Helen. Can you hear me? Yes, yes we can. Okay. Just a comment. You were asking about how um, people are marketing the vaccine, and we're at Scott Air Force Base here. We've been aggressively marketing the vaccine to this age group. Uh, one population that got our attention was our active duty females for deployment reasons. It's not a mandatory injection, but it's highly encouraged. And right now we got about 90% of our active duty vaccinated. Uh, we're really hitting the pediatric uh, arena with our young girls between 11 and 12. We hit that area first, and we're having a really good response with parents getting their girls vaccinated. We've marketed it in the base paper. We talked to all our patients who come in, and we're vaccinating more and more people. Dr. Oren, that, that's very impressive. Uh, as Dr. Schutte was mentioning, uh, I think for many of us, the problem is first getting adolescents to come and see the doctor. Uh, what is your secret? Letters. We mailed a lot of letters. We, mm -hmm. um, the, our pediatric clinic got a hold of their population that they wanted to target it, and they've sent out letters. We sent out um, letters and emails to our active duty troops, so we've just been flooding the market with these vaccines. We just got done with school physicals. We do um, kind of like a cattle call of school physical once a year. Got most of them started there. That's the first place they stopped was immunizations. We're educated on the on Gardasil vaccine, and a lot of people were there for their initial vaccine and coming up for their um, second and third vaccines. So we've done a lot of marketing and a lot of um, steps to get personal letters out so they at least heard it before they came to the school physicals. And then when they came to the school physicals, we were able to educate more one-on-one -on -one and um, do the initial vaccine. So one uh, point in the uh, data that Merck submitted to the FDA was that although the vaccine is recommended to be given over a six-month period, the immunological response that they saw was at least as good if it was given over a one-year period. And this in some settings for young adolescents might be easier to give the third vaccine the third vaccination a year after the first uh, and I just raise this so that there actually are data that uh, the response is at least as good if you wait that long that's good to know especially with our um, population being so transient if they can't make it at the six month if they can do it at the year yeah that'd be something good for us to pass on especially with our deployed troops who may not be able to get back or get a hold of the vaccine at the six-month period. Right, right. And I think that, you know, in regard to the two questions about women who have active infection, one of the uh, take-home messages of our study is that there doesn't seem to be any there don't seem to be any untoward side effects if you give the vaccine to women who are who have active who have active infection, and that I think uh, provides a level of comfort if one is considering giving the vaccine to people who have infection. Because in this situation, you knew that the women were actually infected with one of the vaccine strains. That's what we're practicing. We're um, anybody under 26, infected or not, we're offering the vaccine. Hey, that's great. Um, I have a question for you. As, as you've reached out to parents of pediatric patients, have you run into any resistance from them or any, any barriers that they put up, uh, reasons why they might not want to vaccinate their children? Uh, we don't really deal with the uh, pediatric population that much, but personally I've had some Parents that are resistant, and it's basically because of religious beliefs or um, same reason why they don't want to 
start their daughters on the pill for other reasons other than birth control. So that is a bit of a barrier. I'm not seeing that to be uh, the majority, though. I'm hearing parents, you know, haven't heard of this, they're glad to get the information, and they want to do what they can to get their children vaccinated. And I think as the information goes out from parents who have had their daughters vaccinated, it may help with the parents who are reluctant. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, we have time for another question. Do we have any more questions in the queue? Uh, at this time, we have no further questions. Great. Well, it's been, a, it's been an excellent discussion. I, I'd like to move it on now, uh, Dr. Lowe, a little bit more to the area of public policy and financing. Um, you know, what is your understanding of how many insurers pay for the vaccine, uh, the vaccine itself and administration fees, um, and does that present a barrier in your opinion? Well, I, this is beyond my area of expertise, but uh, what I have been told is that the vast majority of insurers now are reimbursing for the vaccine, uh, where I think that there have, has ended up being some problems, at least in the short term, has been the reimbursement above the cost of the vaccine and how much insurers are willing to uh, give uh, beyond the cost of the vaccine for administering the, vaccina the, the vaccination itself. And I think that that is on a provider-by-provider -provider basis. Great. Okay. And, you know, another question I have is, is there any evidence out there, I'm, I'm thinking back to the comment um, our last caller made that some parents raised concerns, perhaps religious, um, and is there any evidence uh, that the vaccine uh, increases sexual activity, promiscuity? Is, is, have you heard any concerns in that regard, or do you know of any evidence in yes. that area? First, this is a concern that some people have. Second, I don't think that the vaccine has been in use for a long enough time for there to have been an accumulation of any uh, important data, either yes or no. Uh, I, I think that the uh, my understanding from behavioral studies is that fear of HPV uh, infection is not generally an important driver for uh, women making decisions about uh, becoming uh, sexually active. Uh, and I, I think that uh, it is very likely that uh, women, w women will or won't be sexually active independent of the vaccine, although, as I say, there are no data uh, on this. Uh, rather than thinking, you know, rather than thinking about uh, the a vac vaccination, uh, if we think about other risky behavior that teenagers engage in, such as uh, driving, uh, we basically re recommend that everybody use seatbelts, and uh, it, as far as we know, it doesn't lead to more reckless driving, although in principle it could. Well, that makes good sense, and I would I would um, echo your suspicion that fear of HPV uh, and cervical cancer probably is not a major driver of decision making, uh, certainly uh, in that age group. So that makes sense. Now, now you've raised an interesting public health perspective. Uh, most states are now mandating uh, the use of seatbelts through statute. Uh, do you have any thoughts or comments about perhaps the wisdom of making this vaccine mandatory? I think that this is something that is decided on a state-by-state -state basis, and when some states try to introduce uh, legislation in that direction uh, for immediate implementation, there was a fair amount of pushback. And I think that there are some uh, there are some uh, scientifically or medically important issues, which is that uh, first, 
the safety record in the target population has not yet been compiled so that uh, hundreds of thousands uh, to millions of young adolescent women have not yet received the vaccine. And as with any other new vaccine, the duration of protection remains to be seen. Uh, we know that the vaccine uh, confers at least five years of protection, uh, but the studies simply haven't gone out uh, f far enough. Uh, I think that uh, once the vaccine, if the vaccine continues to have a good safety record and to be shown to be effective for uh, even beyond the five-year range, then I think that the question of making the va vaccine mandatory uh, it becomes more pertinent because there aren't the strong uh, medical issues of should this or should this not become uh, uh, mandatory. On the other hand, the uh, there may be individuals with, very, with strong feelings against the vaccine, uh, and I think that we would probably, probably would not be in everyone's best interest to force people to take the vaccine, and it should be able people should be able to opt out of the vaccine. Uh, my personal feeling is that a way of trying to separate the vaccine from sexual activity is by giving the vaccine to adolescents who are relatively young and who are not giving serious consideration to becoming sexually active. It seems to me that the closer we get to the age range where uh, girls or women are considering being becoming sexually active, that actually this question then gets brought into the mix with the vaccine. So I actually think that trying to target young adolescents of 11 or 12, as the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices recommended, makes sense from that point of view as well. Well, thank you very much for those great comments. Uh, that is all the time we have for our call today. It's been an absolutely wonderful discussion of the issues brought up by your article. Uh, and thank you very much, uh, Dr. Lowy, both for the uh, excellent research and your willingness to spend time uh, discussing that with us today. Before we close, Dr. Lowy, do you have any uh, closing comments or additional thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Well, I just think that you, it should be recognized that the vaccine is very effective in preventing incident infection, but uh, as our study showed, it seems to do very little to alter the natural history of women who are already infected and that there are going to continue to be potentially serious infections that are not going to be protected by the vaccine because the vaccine can protect against up to about 70% or so of serious infections. And therefore, uh, appropriate public health measures need to be taken, such as continuing to follow cervical cancer screening guidelines. And I think that many of the people, most of the people on the call are very well aware of all of this. And I really appreciated the invitation, the opportunity to share some of uh, my feelings with you and to be able to respond to so many interesting uh, and provocative questions. Great. Well, Dr. Lowy, thank you very much. Your participation has been wonderful uh, and uh, a lot of very good information and very eloquent answers to our questions. So thank you. Uh, as a reminder, uh, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion will take place on Wednesday, October 17th, again at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Our featured guests will be Ramsai uh, Bonsai, and the article, again, is The Effectiveness of Teaching Quality Improvement to Clinicians. Uh, Author in the Room is sponsored, again, jointly by both the Journal of the American Metal Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical care. Thanks again to all of you for being part of our call, and have a good day. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's conference. Thank you for participating. You may all disconnect.